0: Welcome back to my podcast, From Hevel to Eternity. I'm Brian, and we're continuing to walk through the books of the Minor Prophets. This week, we're on the second book of the Twelve, the book of Joel. We're going to try and keep the same format as the other Minor Prophet books, breaking them into two episodes. Part 1 I will give some background, and overview, and the major themes, while in part 2 I dive into the weeds with a little greater explanations on a couple things. The Book of Joel is really short, it's only three chapters, but that doesn't make it easy. It is a complicated read. Portions of it read like a horror story and other portions come off as super reassuring and comforting. There are a lot of jumps back and forth between those two states combine the vocabulary itself being very foreign to us with there not being an obviously linear narrative, and you get what I think is one of the harder-to-understand books of the Old Testament. For me, it's also one of the hardest to explain, so bear with me here as I walk through this book. The Bible Project, which is a free non Bible study site, has a read scripture video on Joel, which I highly recommend watching. In that video, they call this book Powerful and Puzzling. Again, you can find that at thebibleproject.com. Joel is one of only a couple books in the Bible where we have no definite timeline given. We only have clues as to when it could possibly have been written. The estimates for when it occurred vary wildly over a 500-year period, and depending on where in this timeline you place it, the book of Joel could be one of the earliest or one of the latest prophetic books that were ever written. I believe that the book was one of the later books written in the time after the Israelites had returned to Jerusalem following their captivity in Babylon, that the circumstances taking place are those described in Ezra and Nehemiah, meaning that there would be this small group of Jewish settlers having returned to the promised land that had just finished rebuilding the temple. If you're curious about the process for decoding the timeline of this book, then don't miss the second Joel podcast coming out later this week, but I'm not going to dive into it here as it doesn't play an extremely pertinent role in interpreting the book. The who behind the book is the prophet Joel. He is the one God is using to relay his message to the people. As with almost all the prophets, Joel's name carries significance. In Hebrew, Joel means Yahweh is God, pointing to the authority and sovereignty of the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. As we hear the message of the book of Joel, we should remember that Yahweh is the one true God, who stands throughout history and has promised to bless and redeem His people. As we read through this book, we must remember that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, who died for our sins was resurrected, ascended, and is returning one day in glory. He is the author and protector of our salvation, the founder and the finisher of our faith. So the Cliff Notes message of the book of Joel is that both the Israelites and all other nations are living in a state of sin. So God is using the prophet Joel to warn them of what's to come. There will be a coming day of the Lord which will involve judgment and destruction. All nations should turn from their current trajectory and reorient themselves toward God through repentance. Those who do this will find the day of the Lord is a one of refuge. But this is a call to repentance. Genuine repentance. Not some fake repentance full of false promises that are covered in outwardly religious clothing. God knows the heart and he's not after anyone's faux repentance. The Lord is the one true God, and that one true God is calling his people to return to him and receive his promises and his blessings. That's where we're going to end up. So with that in mind, there are a few themes that unfold over these three short chapters. The first theme is the wickedness of the people and the judgment of God and how they're woven into every chapter in Joel. God outlines the wickedness of his people, and he outlines the judgment they face because of it. God is a loving God, and God is a loving Father. And just like any loving Father, there is always some teaching, correction, and authority that has to be outlined. God will show mercy to his people, and will even provide an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on his people. But first, he is going to admonish them, and he is going to punish them. But the goal of that is to eventually lead the people back to him through repentance. Which is the second theme, repent, turn back to God. Interestingly enough, God doesn't actually outline each of the specific behaviors Israel should repent of. Some of the other prophets outline specifics like idolatry in Hosea or injustice in Amos. Joel just informs them that they need to turn from whatever they're doing and return to God. It's kind of an all-encompassing accusation. As is consistent with other prophets, no group of Israelites was exempt from this call. God announces that every aspect of Israelite society is affected and is called to repent. Chapters 1 and 2 call out the priests and the elders alongside the rest of Israelite society. It's important to note that God takes no pleasure in executing his wrath on the unrepentant. I think Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 32 is very helpful here. God says in that verse, "For I have no pleasure in the death of him who dies," says the Lord Yahweh. "Therefore turn yourselves and live." God desires repentance from his people. But why is turning toward God so important? Because of the third theme. The day of the Lord is coming, or the day of Yahweh depending on your translation. It's the same. This day is described in detail as something that can't be avoided or run from. Some descriptions from the book of Joel are, The day of Yahweh is at hand, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. For it is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. For the day of Yahweh is great and very awesome, and who can endure it? The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of Yahweh comes. For the day of Yahweh is near, in the Valley of Decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Yahweh will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth will shake, but Yahweh will be a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the children of Israel. Look, the book makes it clear that the day of the Lord isn't going to be terrible for everyone. Those who trust in God will actually find refuge on that day. But everyone is going to have to face the day of the Lord, one way or the other. There's no avoiding the music. David Platt, in the sermon which can be found on Radical.net, says that it will be a day of destruction for the resistant. But Platt continues and he goes on and says that it would be a day of salvation for the repentant. Notice that it's not just as cut and dry as the day of the Lord will be good for all Israelites and bad for everyone else. Joel grows this seed that it could go poorly for unrepentant Israelites also. Just because they have an Israelite bloodline, they should not think that they are above reproach here. Theme number four is that regardless of nationality, the outcome of the day of the Lord for the repentant who trust and follow God will be refuge and respite. God says he will restore his people, and God is a promise keeper. The ESV translation says in chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. As amazing as this vision is, God doesn't stop there. Joel goes on to prophesy that God will give his people a gift. He'll give them himself in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 continue. It will happen afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophecy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. And also on the servants and on the handmaids in those days, I will pour out my spirit. The beginning of Joel 2.32 says, It will happen that whoever will call on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is maybe the most complex theology to begin to wrap our heads around, but our God exists as three separate persons that are all the same God. God the Father sent God the Son to die on the cross to save all who turn and put their faith in him. But God also sends the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to reside in believers and transform our hearts from the inside. We see this promise throughout the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy to Jeremiah to Ezekiel to right here in Joel. We see it reiterated by Jesus himself in the Gospel accounts, and we see this promise kept in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. It is no accident that right after Peter receives the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, he addresses the crowd in Acts chapter 2, and he starts his first Christian sermon by quoting this passage right here, these verses, from Joel about the coming of the Holy Spirit and salvation for those who call on the name of the Lord. He finishes the sermon in Acts 2, Let all the house of Israel therefore know certainly, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God wants men and women to turn back to him, to put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so judgment, repentance, turn back to God, follow Jesus, that doesn't seem that complicated. What's the catch? Why is the book of Joel so hard to read? Well, for starters, it's all over the place. Those themes I talked about, they aren't in any order in the book. They are blended throughout the entire text. My recommendation is to take it one chapter at a time and to look for three things in each chapter. First, look for judgment, destruction, and a coming havoc on the wicked. This shows up in the book against the nations that have persecuted the Israelites but it also shows up against the Israelites themselves who think that they are above this punishment. God is speaking a word of warning against the Israelites and Gentiles alike. This theme shows up at the start of every chapter, so look for it in the first couple verses as you read. Second, look for a call to return to God. Look for humility language, which is the mindset we need in order to repent and return to God most of the language of judgment comes against those who show prideful symptoms those who don't remember what joel's name means it means yahweh is god we should revere the lord as such third look at the end of chapters 2 and 3 in particular for the promised redemption of being a repentant member of god's people look for the blessings that come to those who turn and trust in god so judgment and destruction call to return and then the promised blessings and the redemption that comes through that. So to overcome a book that doesn't go linearly, one resolution for me has been to look for that. Look for the judgments of a just God, a call to return to that God, and then the promised blessings of that God. Alrighty, so now onto probably one of the biggest challenges and the most confusing vocabulary in the whole book, the locust swarms that dominate the first chapter. If you've read the book of Joel, you know what I'm talking about. For those who haven't, I'm going to read six verses in Joel chapter one. If you want to follow along, I'm starting with verse two. It starts, Hear this, you elders, and listen, all you inhabitants of the land. Has this ever happened in your days, or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it, and have your children tell their children, and their children another generation. What the swarming locust has left, the great locust has eaten. What the great locust has left, the grasshopper has eaten. What the grasshopper has left, the caterpillar has eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers, of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth for a nation has come up on my land strong and without number his teeth are the teeth of a lion and he has the fangs of a lioness he has laid my vine waste and stripped my fig tree he has stripped its bark and thrown it away its branches are made white so i'm going to try and tackle this without breaking the dirtiness scale but you may just have to hold on tight to your pocket protectors for a minute. The ESV Study Bible says that by the time Joel's imagination amplifies the killer locusts into more than literal creatures, the book of Joel emerges as almost a horror story. Some translations use different types of locust names, and some use other insect variations, like grasshopper and caterpillar. Whether the names here are for different types of locusts Different species of insects, different stages of locust development, or just names for the different waves coming through. The picture in your mind should be of this army of bugs, sent to strip the land bare all the way down to its bones, and coming in waves. These swarms are removing all the fertility of the promised land, which was called that because God promised it would be abundant and fertile, right? It was supposed to be a land dripping with milk and honey. God brought his people out of Egypt, and he made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. If the people kept their covenant, he promised blessings. If they didn't, if they turned away from God, he promised curses. The exile to Babylon was one of those curses. Now the people are back in the promised land, and these insects are going to remove what God gave them, all because his people were still running away from him. When we talk about the covenant curses in the Book of Deuteronomy, Moses writes in Deuteronomy twenty eight verses thirty eight through forty two. You shall carry much seed out into the field and shall gather little in, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your borders, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olive shall cast its fruit you shall father sons and daughters but they shall not be yours for they shall go into captivity all your trees and the fruit of your ground shall the locust possess so god warns his people all the way back during their exodus out of egypt that turning away from god would result in captivity in a foreign land and in the stripping away the fertility of the nation Thomas Schreiner says the locust plague was not just a chance happening. It was instead a manifestation of Yahweh's covenant judgment upon his people. So this locust imagery points both forward and backward. If you turn backward in the second book of the Bible, in Exodus chapter 10, one of the ten plagues God uses to redeem his people out of Egypt was locusts sent to wreak havoc on the Egyptian harvest. This punishment afflicted the Egyptians, who would not listen to the Lord, and it resulted in the Israelites being saved. It is now representative of the punishment against Israel itself, meant to lead them to repentance. Notice the goal is still the same, though. God wants his people to call on him and be saved. It is also important to note that in chapter 2, the army of locusts starts to take on the description of an actual army of the Lord, The locust swarms could be pointing toward a literal locust plague or an historical army, but it is almost absolutely pointing forward toward God's judgment on a future day. With that in mind, we turn forward to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. The idea of the locust being representative of an army of God that brings forth devastation and judgment in the end times, it's picked up by the angel that sounds the fifth trumpet in Revelation. Starting in chapter 9, verse 3, and skipping down, we read, Then out of the smoke came forth locusts on the earth, and power was given to them. They were told that they should not hurt the grass on the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those people who don't have God's seal on their foreheads. The shapes of the locusts were like horses prepared for war. The sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots or of many horses rushing to war. That was verses 3, 4, 7, and 9 in Revelation chapter 9. A locust army is described in the book of Revelation as a tool of judgment used to torment those who had not turned back to God. Which brings us back to the major theme of the book. God wants men and women to turn back to him and put their faith in him. So I'll get into the dating of the book, some word counts, and the many cross-references that show up in Joel next episode, but I'll start to land the plane today with a quote from Richard Belcher. The day of the Lord brings devastation to the wicked, but deliverance to those who turn to God. So how can we apply that message to our daily life? How can we apply that message to our reading of the Bible? I think one place to land is to read the bible and pray through it in a way that actually affects us like when was the last time you took the word of god let it marinate and then allowed its words to transform your life to change your life in a way that led you back towards god away from some other direction you were going i fear that we myself included take things that we read like calls for repentance, social justice, or forgiveness, and we set them aside as things that would be good, but they don't directly apply to us all the time. We rationalize it differently when it requires personal change. We say things like, well, my circumstances are different, or if you only know the extent of what that person did to me, or if you only knew what was really going on in everything else around my life. So sometimes we even focus on how these calls apply to other people way more than they apply to us. Like how often do we hear a sermon or read a verse and all the application flows outwardly? Like I hope my spouse is paying attention today because he or she is so guilty of this. Like sometimes we keep ourselves from having to change because we make it more about other people. People we think might be worse than us. Instead of praying that God might illuminate where that problem is secretly rampant in our own lives. Jesus would go on to call this refusing to recognize the log in our own eye. Occasionally we're open to the idea of being convicted, but other times, maybe too often, we're busy indicting others, hoping that they're being convicted to change instead. This noise drowns out our ability to be open and honest with ourselves. We want others to change so that we don't have to. I could love that person better if they just lived differently. Then I wouldn't have to repent. Like, this is what the Israelites thought. We're good with God. He wants these other nations to change. They're the ones who are going to be judged. Joel and the rest of the prophets are shouting, No, it's not about other people. It's about you. God's people need to be affected by God's word and need to turn to him in repentance. One of the foundational aspects of the gospel is recognizing that Jesus died on the cross not just for our sins, but because of our sins. No matter how good you think you are or how bad you think others might be, we are all equally in need of the completed work of Christ on the cross. We are saved through faith in Jesus alone and that faith requires a humble acknowledgement that our way doesn't work, that we must turn from our way and turn toward a savior. Unless otherwise noted, the scripture cited in this study is from the World English Bible Translation, which is public domain. Until next time, I love y'all.